Welcome to China Insider, a podcast from Hudson Institute's China Center. Today we have three topics to discuss.、Uh, number one is the、uh, on the 31st anniversary of the Tiananmen massacre. We're going to contemplate the Tiananmen movement of 1989 as a momentous history-making global event, not just a Chinese event. The second topic we're talking about today is AUKUS and the future of free and open Indo-Pacific. The third topic discuss about the, what just happened in Taiwan Strait and the Shangri-La、uh, Defense Dialogue in Singapore, and of course we're going to focus on. The Chinese military brinksmanship,、uh, particularly in Taiwan Strait,、uh, as a near collision just、uh, took place between the American、uh, warship and the Chinese one. Joining me today is Mr. Xian Liri, who has been in the background from the beginning of this broadcast. He's played a very important role in、um, uh, providing、uh, great support for this show. So today he is actually the co-host with me, Xian. Thank you for joining me, and、uh, how are you? Good, and thank you for having me, Miles.、Um, really excited to be on the show.、Uh, I'll do my best to try to fill、uh, Wilson's shoes and, and keep this wonderful project going. With that, you know, I think、uh, why don't we just jump in to、uh, the topics for this week? So, this past Sunday, June fourth, was the thirty-fourth anniversary of the nineteen eighty-nine Tiananmen Square massacre,、uh, one of the most harrowing moments in recent Chinese history,、uh, in which thousands of student protesters were were killed、uh, and many more wounded by the People's Liberation Army on orders from the Chinese Communist Party to put down national pro-democracy protests. As you sit here today, I mean, what what is the legacy of Tiananmen Square in the U.S. in particular,、uh, and for China's international image, but most importantly within China itself? Every year on June fourth, and it's a very、um, solemn moment for us to remember what happened thirty-four years ago.、Uh, the reason why it is still remembered,、uh, and the、um, the power of emotion is still there, is because it has never been accounted for, and and also China is still a dictatorship. So what the Tiananmen protesters try to achieve、uh, has failed. So、uh, the struggle continues, as we say. The the very important thing about Tiananmen is that we have to understand the Tiananmen movement for seven weeks、uh, that shattered the world、um, is not just a Chinese event; it is the world event. It had a profound impact about the world events. We say 1989 is the year when communism collapsed in Eastern Europe and in the Soviet Union, at the beginning of the collapse of the Soviet Union, I should say. That revolution was all triggered by the events in Tiananmen Square a few months before.、Uh, that started in mid-April and that ended tragically on the、um, uh, in the early mornings of June fourth, nineteen eighty-nine. It's because、um, this is how、uh, it should be remembered. Tiananmen movement、uh, was accompanied by、uh, Mr. Gorbachev's visit to China. In mid-May, a few couple weeks before the massacre,、uh, Gorbachev was the a symbol of communist reform, and he started the Glasnost and he started the Perestroika, which began the process of dismantling of the Soviet communist system. So he was regarded by a lot of people in China as a hero、uh, to reform communist system. 
by that time, Chinese uh, uh, communist system has reached a dead end. Deng Xiaoping wanted to open up uh, China to the world economic system. However, he wants to hold on to the political dictatorship. So this is basically uh, a dead end, and it was not going to work. When Gorbachev went to China, it had great inspiration for the protesters, which uh, who had already been on the square for a couple of weeks. And he was the leader of the Soviet system that still occupies Eastern Europe. So those captive nations are watching what Gorbachev would respond to the Tiananmen massacre. So right after Gorbachev left China, and the massacre occurred. So he was forced to make a comment on the massacre itself. And so the massacre is so morally repulsive to the world. It made Gorbachev impossible to repeat what the Soviet had done to the Hungarians in 1956 and to the Czechoslovakians in 1968, meaning crackdowns. So Gorbachev made it very clear he would never repeat what the Soviet did in 1956, 1968, and in 1989, just a few weeks before. So that is a, such a powerful inspiration for people in Eastern Europe. And with the, uh, the impossibility of Soviet military intervention, the revolution erupted in Czechoslovakia, in Poland, in Romania. That's basically the beginning of the collapse of the, of the uh, Soviet communist system in Eastern Europe. So this is very important for us to understand. The only country, Eastern European country that resisted this kind of a call for, 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 uh, for liberation was East Germany, which was then ruled by this diehard communist, Eric Honecker. Now, Honecker was so notorious in East Germany at the time, he was forced to, to flee. He, he resigned. Succeeding him was the young Politburo leader by the name of Krenz. Now, Krenz was a younger guy, but he was also pretty pro the Chinese Communist Party. So after the massacre, he flew to Beijing and took picture with the Chinese Communist Party leader, Deng Xiaoping and other, Jiang Zemin and other people. He became enormously unpopular and, uh, and notorious after he returned from China. He was associated with the butchering in Beijing, and the people were fed up with him. So you have massive protest throughout the entire East Germany, which made Kranz, the East Germany Communist Party, impossible to continue uh, to rule. And then uh, on November 9th, the Politburo of East Germany uh, Communist Party finally made a decision to open up the Brandenburg gates, and the, which led to the, uh, to the downfall of the Burning Wall. So all the symbolic and the substantive revolution took place in Eastern Europe after the Tiananmen massacre was directly triggered by what went on in Tiananmen Square. So this is really, really important. Now, the first American politician that recognized this connection between the collapse of Soviet Union and the collapse of uh, communism in Eastern Europe and the Tiananmen Massacre was Mike Pompeo. Mike Pompeo, on the 30th anniversary of Tiananmen Massacre, which is 2019, he issued a very long and uh, thoughtful statement. And I'm going to read uh, one paragraph in this regard. And I quote, We salute the heroes of the Chinese people who bravely stood up 30 years ago in Tiananmen Square to demand their rights. Their exemplary courage has served as the inspiration to future generations 
calling for freedom and democracy around the world, beginning with the fall of the Berlin Wall at the end of communism in Eastern Europe and in the months that followed. End of quote. That's very powerful. From what you're saying, Tiananmen is this incredibly decisive moment, and you know we're watching the cracks form. And it it almost, from what you're saying, it almost sounds to me like uh, the Chinese Communist Party, in a way, is is signaling or uh, sort of inheriting a brutality that's sort of fading away from the Soviet Union. How is it that this wasn't more of a wake up call for us? That only ten years after this event. We have the normalization of, of trade relations with China, and we're in entering into one of our most optimistic periods with regards to U.S.-China relations. What, what was what was the reaction in the U.S. like at the time? The U.S. president was George H. W. Bush, and who is a cold warrior who is deeply into this、uh, business of containment. He did not see the destruction of the communist system. As an immediate goal, rather to contain it. So he he he's personally a friend of Deng Xiaoping. Um, he was advised by、uh, some of his、uh, legendary cold warriors, most notably、um, Mr. Henry Kissinger. They feel obviously morally、um, uh, repulsed by the brutality of the massacre. On the other hand, they also want to maintain cordial relationship with China, and then they resort to secret diplomacy. So they、uh, they condemn China and embargo uh, uh, Chinese uh, uh, enhanced export export control to China. Uh, but then secretly, they basically send、uh, liaison to talk to the Chinese Communist Party, say, "Hey, listen, you know, we we didn't mean it." <laughs> so that basically is 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 a very very bad example. The lessons of Tiananmen to the Americans、uh, should be number one that the illusion that this the Chinese Communist Party representing the Chinese people is just that illusion. That illusion should have been shattered right there because. The Tiananmen movement was the fullest ex- demonstration of the uncompromising interest of the Chinese people and the Chinese Communist Party, and you have enormous、uh, demands to end communist dictatorship, even from some of the people within the Chinese communist system. And and I, here we have the excerpt of the、uh, Chinese establishment propaganda outlet, that is Radio Beijing, which is the main. English language、uh, international propaganda, and they, listen to the what the announcer said as the massacre was happening in Tiananmen Square. This is Radio Beijing. Please remember June the third, nineteen eighty-nine. The most tragic event happened in the Chinese capital, Beijing. Thousands of people, most of them innocent civilians, were killed by fully armed soldiers. When they forced their way into the city, among the killed are our colleagues at Radio Beijing. The soldiers were riding on armored vehicles and used machine guns against thousands of local residents and students who tried to block their way. When the army convoys made a breakthrough, soldiers continued to spray their bullets indiscriminately at crowds in the street. Eyewitnesses say some armored vehicles even crushed foot soldiers who hesitated in front of the resisting civilians. Radio Beijing English Department deeply mourns those died in the tragic incident and appeals to all its listeners to join our protest for the gross violation of human rights and the most barbarous oppression of the people. Because of the abnormal situation here in Beijing, there is no other news we could bring you. 
I sincerely ask for your understanding and thank you for joining us at this most tragic moment. But the American elite would not really sort of uh, recognize the, this uh, sheer fact that Chinese Communist Party should not be representing the Chinese people. I remember Mr. Henry Kissinger, right after the massacre, published an article in the Washington Post. The title of that is called, Calling Deng Xiaoping the Dictator is Unfair. He was defending the Chinese Communist Party butcher at the time. So there is this kind of a lessons unlearned. That's very, very unfortunate. Uh, secondly, uh, and I think it's most importantly, American foreign policy, particularly uh, U.S. policy toward China, should really be focused on major ethos of 1989. It is not about the future of a democratic China guided by the so-called CCP reformers. The lesson of 1989 should be even the most reform-minded Chinese Communist Party leader would not pause for a moment to butcher its own people when it comes to regime survival. Deng Xiaoping was the most uh, open-minded um, uh, reformer in China, but the, even that person would become instantly an orchestrator of the massacre, killing his own people. So that illusion should have been long gone, but uh, that illusion continued on for another two or three decades, which is very unfortunate. So that's why it is during the Trump administration, we're really focused on Americanism, uh, moral and uh, diplomatic focus, going back not to the time uh, when Deng Xiaoping and Jiang Zemin and those reformers were in charge, but to 1989 when the Chinese people were demonstrating uh, their uh, disenchantment against the Chinese Communist Party. So the party and the people were absolutely not the same thing. No, and, and you're right. I mean, it's, it's, it shows a remarkable degree of, of continuity, as you've argued before, that the reformers we would point to to show these shifts and changes and potential hope uh, in the party's direction are, are the ones responsible for the most uh, tragic moment of reaching – Chinese history. Uh, just as a last question, I mean, what is it like today? I mean, we we just got a taste of the propaganda at the time, but if, if you're a Chinese uh, citizen today living in the mainland, what is June 4th like for that person? Is this something that is only really discussed in dissident communities? Are people aware of it, but they don't speak about it? Well, first of all, the Chinese government has conducted the, the most comprehensive memory erasing, uh, that is, uh, they try to basically erase any visible signs of the Tiananmen massacre. And so um, uh, the word Tiananmen means totally different things uh, in China. Outside of China, it's, it's one of the very historical infamous signs like Munich and Pearl Harbor. So it's not just a one place. Uh, a place. Um, it has a very uh, noxious historical meanings. So in China, Tiananmen has none of that. So generations of Chinese people would not know what happened on June 4th, 1989, today in China. That's a tragedy. But as I know, memories are deep and resentment was subterranean and uh, can erupt uh, at any moment like a volcano. volcano. Mm -hmm. So there are a lot of people uh, on the anniversary um, each year try their best ways to, to commemorate this, this, this historic event. In Hong Kong yesterday, the police just arrested a whole bunch of people who simply holding signs to say June 4th, right? And then uh, last Friday, there was a concert in the Chinese National Stadium. There is a brave woman went up to the to the to one of the uh, uh, balcony and 
display a huge American flag. Wow! And with the words of from the Declaration of Independence on that,、uh, she was、uh, momentarily manhandled and arrested. The most poignant image from Tiananmen Square was the erection of the Goddess of Democracy by the Chinese students, and that was the、uh, the image. Uh, similar to the、uh, the Statue of Liberty、uh, near Harbor, it's a symbol of freedom. It shows once again the enormous inspirational power of the United States. Essence of Tiananmen is really about freedom. It's about democracy, and of course, Chinese government also Chinese people were also very resentful of the concomitant result of lack of democracy, freedom, which is corruption and、uh, and other things. So that's why today, if you ask a Traveler from China, what do you want to know uh, uh, most? And they one of the user answer is that I want to know what the heck actually happened in Tiananmen on June fourth of nineteen eighty nine. And、uh, books were banned, and voices were silenced inside China. So that's why they want to know. And、uh, gradually, more and more people will know.、Uh, and so there's the Tiananmen mothers, right? The the, the mothers of the、um, of the of、uh, the children who were killed. And they are still alive. Many of them very brave.、Um, and each year we award Nobel Peace Prize, and I think that group deserve Nobel Prize many times over. And I mean, one can only imagine, you know, the internal turmoil of of having a sense、uh, of this event, but not not having you know the full picture and, and not being able to get that without leaving the country. Switching gears to the preservation of freedom today. Just this past Tuesday, the China Center we hosted an event.、Uh, it was a panel. With 70th Secretary of State Mike Pompeo,、uh, former Prime Ministers of Australia Scott Morrison, and former Prime Minister of the UK Boris Johnson, to discuss、uh, the historic AUKUS agreement.、Uh, this is just to remind our listeners a trilateral security partnership. This was unveiled in September of 2021,、uh, which aims to enhance collaboration between the three countries through comprehensive information sharing and technology exchange. In particular, in the most immediate term, supporting and assisting the Royal Australian Navy in acquiring. Nuclear-powered submarines.、Um, so, I just want to, you know, as a sort of follow-up to this event, Miles, why and how did this agreement、uh, come into being, and and what is its significance for the preservation of a free and open Indo-Pacific? And、um, this is actually one of the many groupings in, in the Indo-Pacific, right? We have uh, uh, now we have AUKUS, but in addition we have、uh, Quad, for example, that consists of、uh, treaty partners of、uh, U.S., Japan, India, and Australia. And then, of course,、uh, in addition to that, we also have、uh, a whole bunch of uh, uh, U.S. Uh, bilateral uh, mutual defense arrangements with、uh, countries like Japan, South Korea, and the Philippines, even with Thailand to a certain degree. The reason why we have this kind of alliance system is because all the countries in the Pacific are facing a common threat, and that's China. A common threat demands common defense. And so this is, there's always a, a, a strong element of security and defense、uh, in all these groupings. AUKUS is purely defense. AUKUS is also involves something that's very real, and uh, uh, that is a、uh, most advanced technology of military lethality. You might say, despite all those groupings, right?、Uh, there are core coalition. There's auxiliary co-、uh, coalitions. And I would consider AUKUS as the, a core coalition because this is three、um, of the world's democracies and come together to、uh, to build a、uh, nuclear-powered submarine fleet for Australia 
which is strategically located in the Indo-Pacific area, and which obviously is going to be a very important uh, battleground in the future showdown between uh, tyranny and freedom in that area. So that's why this AUKUS uh, arrangement is of great significance. I'm glad that the Hudson Institute China Center uh, uh, was able to get uh, the three major architects of the AUKUS, uh, former Prime Minister of uh, Australia, Scott Morrison, former UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson, and our own Secretary of State, uh, Mike Pompeo, to uh, talk about this. Uh, you couldn't get any more um, authoritative sources than that. For our listeners, if you're interested, you can find the full panel at Hudson.org. Uh, the title of the event is Partnership of Freedom, AUKUS Viewed by Its Architects. It was an incredibly substantive discussion, uh, and I would encourage any of you who are interested to check that out. And and also, I'll, I'll end by saying, you know, as we noted in the event, it's it's great to see that AUKUS has continued to um, enjoy bipartisan support and, and, you know, be carried through to the next administrations in each respective country. As our last topic for the day, this happened just very recently, this past Saturday. We had a close encounter between the PLAN and the U.S. Navy during a joint Canada-U.S. mission sailing through the Taiwan Strait. The USS Chung Hoon, an American destroyer, uh, was effectively cut off by a Chinese warship that had been shadowing the exercise up until that point, as I understand it, before it rapidly altered course and instructed the American ship to move, telling it there would be a collision. The U.S. destroyer was forced to slow down, and the ships came quite close, only within 150 yards of one another, which to our listeners, if that doesn't sound quite that close, uh, for vessels of that size, as I understand it, Miles, you'd know more than I do, but there's very little maneuverability in such close quarters, so it really was quite a close call. What is your impression of what happened here? How serious was this? Um, and and what, what could have been going through the minds uh, of the crew of that Chinese warship to take such brazen action? China is a big country with nukes and increasingly... Uh, lethal military uh, weapon platforms, but it's a big country that behaves like a backyard bully. <laughs> it's really irresponsible. It's very dangerous. In the old days, in the, uh, in the, during the Cold War, the Soviet Union and the United States you know, uh, have the capability to destroy each other mutually. So realizing that, uh, uh, that uh, uh, gruesome outcome, so both Soviet Union and the American leaders could actually sit down and talk about the rules of engagement to prevent uh, accidental uh, miscalculation of strategic intent. China does not play that game. China, as I say, behaves like a, just a bully. Uh, and uh, the Chinese military has re repeatedly refused Americans' calls for setting up a rule of engagement at the high sea and in the air and the uh, even on the ground. And you can see the Chinese military operators are full of road rage and doing some dangerous, unprofessional maneuvers to heighten the, the tension. Sometimes this is basically Chinese tactics. It's basically what Chinese call uh, uh, to use confrontation to extract a cooperation. So ultimately, they want to do something dangerous, irresponsible, to scare the, the, its adversaries and so that the, uh, at the negotiation table they could extract uh, uh, some uh, concessions. And that's a very, very terrible, irresponsible way. It's, it's a brinksmanship, it's a, it's a gambler's uh, uh, mentality. The Chinese uh, uh, defense minister, um, General Li Shangfu, said at the Shangri-La uh, just uh, last week, and he said, oh, we prefer, we, we actually you know, choose uh, dialogue over confrontation. That is 
at the same time, this dangerous naval encounter occurred on the Taiwan Strait, which is international water, is an open sea. So the Chinese leaders basically uh, uh, can say things uh, uh, from both sides of the mouth simultaneously, and it's it's a really really is is hypocritical, and irresponsible, and ultimately very dangerous. And I think the world should really realize how dangerous China is, not just because of its growing uh, capability, not because of its strategic intent to dominate the world, but it's the way. Its uh, uh, operations uh, was were conducted. Uh, it, it's very very unfortunate. Now, ultimately, I think the victim would not only be uh, other people, but also the Chinese uh, themselves. This shows that how irresponsible, how dangerous other people. They will, they will take collective actions. Remember, the beginning of the worsening of the current China-Japan relationship began with Chinese vessels ramming Japanese vessels. Uh, in open sea, they would do the same thing with the Koreans and, and same thing with the Filipinos. It's a really an international problem, and so that's why China should never take other countries' eagerness to seek dialogue to set up the rule of engagement as a sign of weakness. And uh, so, this is something that we should all do together. But so you're saying, I mean, the way you're framing this, there's some real continuity to this. Uh, we've we've seen this before. But, but this is what everyone, this is the sort of incident in the Taiwan Strait in particular that everyone fears. Uh, outside of a planned military invasion, you know, every time they ramp up their exercises, when, for example, when Nancy Pelosi visited um, and Taiwan does something they don't like and they start firing missiles, things like that, uh, running military drills, there's always this fear that there could be this sort of accidental collision or escalation. Is something like this intentionally coordinated? Is this a one-off by a, a brazen uh, warship, or or is this is this the sort of thing that is um, centrally commanded? There has been some kind of stereotypical bias uh, against Chinese driver in the United States. I can tell you uh, that's absolutely nonsense because Chinese drivers are very responsible, just like everybody else. But it is not stereotypical assumption to say that the Chinese military are bad drivers. They are terrible drivers. They don't follow the rules. That's why rules-based international system is important. Yes, it is a not an, an accident. It's always a pattern. Uh, remember in uh, 2001, the EP3 incident, mm -hmm. that was caused by the Chinese uh, fighter pilots unprofessional maneuvering and uh, and then the cause basically a collision, right? End up this guy, you know, falling down and uh, uh, was killed. So th this is a very very dangerous uh, pattern. The Chinese does this all the time. Um, as I mentioned, that uh, um, there are a way to demonstrate how uh, angry, how upset they are over routine and the legal uh, operations of of the uh, of Western powers, particularly the United States, Japan, and South Korea. No, this is not by accident. This is basically their habit. Bad driving always comes from the bad habit. Uh, if we don't change the the, uh, the habit by following the rule, and then uh, we will get all be in trouble sooner or later. Now that may, that makes perfect sense. And maybe as a as a last question, if I could just ask you. Take us to the ship itself. Is this problem caused by any sort of structure of command within the PLAN? I know that there is Chinese Communist Party commissars on every ship, and there's been a series of military purges. So that it appears to be on some level like this 
some sort of tension. The Chinese military is highly disciplined. No、um, commander, no skipper would act alone without the instruction from above. This kind of behavior is definitely the expression of the Chinese strategic mindset. It's the expression of the high command from the Chinese、uh, government. This kind of passive-aggressive behavior, irresponsible behavior, is not just reflected in military-specific operations. You might recall I mentioned about the EP3 incident, two thousand one. Um, right after that, whenever there's a crisis going on, and also、uh, two years before that, in 1999, there was a、um, uh, accidental bombing of the Chinese、uh, embassy in Belgrade, Yugoslavia, in the Kosovo War. Each time there's a crisis, the American president would urgently place a call to the Chinese leader. The Chinese leader each time would refuse to pick up the phone call and just be passive aggressively. Uh, respond to Americans' uh,、um, request for dialogue, and uh, uh, on each incident I mentioned earlier, Secretary General Jiang Zemin basically just、uh, would not uh, uh, honor Americans' request to, to have a dialogue to solve the problem from the highest level, and and and, and then、uh, continue on、um, this diatribe against Americans' uh, evil uh, deeds. So uh, uh, this is all very political. It's a reflection of the Chinese overall political culture and the strategic mentality, and that's why the China problem is not just operationally uh,、um, uh, formidable. It's also strategically very important for us to remote the whole thinking.、Um, otherwise, we will all be in trouble. I think that's all the time we have today, Miles.、Uh, thank you so much for having me on. Thank you, Shane, and、uh, for joining me today. And、uh, I will see you、uh, next week. See you next week, Miles. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the China Insider, a podcast from the China Center at Hudson Institute. We appreciate Hudson for making this podcast possible. Follow Miles and all of the additional great work we do at Hudson.org. Please remember to rate and review this podcast, and we'll see you next time on the China Insider.